Welcome to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and today's guest is Dr. Kristen Musselman, physical therapist and award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, where she's pioneering the field of spinal cord research to help injured patients walk again. She'll join us in a minute, but first, here's the backstory on Dr. Kristen Musselman. Growing up in Carleton Place, Ontario in the 90s, Kristen says in her teen years, she had life all planned out. She was going to be an accountant. But at age 16, those plans took a dramatic turn after her grandfather suffered a stroke. During his recovery, she visited him every day and was fascinated with how the rehab team and therapists worked to help her grandfather recover some speech and movement. She was intrigued with how a damaged neurological system can be coaxed back to life. As for her career plans, Kristen decided accounting was out, rehab therapy was in. Over the course of her education and training, which included a fellowship at the prestigious Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Kristen was introduced to spinal cord injured patients, and today is pioneering research to help them regain function, including the ability to walk again. Dr. Kristen Musselman, scientist at Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thank you very much for having me. If you don't mind, Kristen, let's start with the actual injury. Can you walk us through the different kinds of spinal cord injury? Sure. Spinal cord injury can be very different from person to person. So it depends on how much damage was done to their spinal cord. So some people have a complete injury, or you could consider that a full injury, where they don't have any sensation or movement below the level of the injury. And prognosis in terms of movement for those people is not great. So they often are in a wheelchair to get around after their injury. On the flip side, there's also what we call incomplete injuries or partial injuries. So that's where some of the spinal cord, where the damage has occurred, is still intact. And so they have some movement and some sensory function below their level of injury. And for those people, their prognosis to regain movement is better. What's the scope then of spinal cord injury in Canada? There's roughly 86,000 Canadians who are living with a spinal cord injury, and each year about 4,300 new cases. So it's not a very common condition, so it's a low prevalence condition, but it's a very costly condition. It's estimated that on a yearly basis, the cost, the economic cost of spinal cord injury is roughly $2.7 billion dollars for those new injuries. And that's the economic cost, but there's, of course, a huge cost for the individual as well as their family. What typically has been the approach to rehab or treatment for partially spinal cord injured patients? In the past, so several decades ago, our approach to rehab for these two different types of injuries didn't really differ. So we were teaching people after spinal cord injury how to perform their daily activities using what parts of their body were still able to move and function. When I entered the field as a physical therapist, we're experiencing the shift in the way that we approached um, rehabilitation for those with partial spinal cord injuries. And we were shifting away from that focusing on compensation to, you know, and using assisted devices to looking more at trying to help their nervous system recover and actually help them regain movement in areas of their body that were affected by the damage. And we're talking here, like, when you were entering the field, late 90s, early 2000s, my understanding is this, I guess we could call it a paradigm shift, came about as a, uh, as a result of a research discovery? Absolutely. So at that time, research had shown that the nervous system is actually quite 
plastic or malleable, and that in response to certain triggers, so that could be drugs or that could be exercise, that the nervous system actually could change and reorganize. And so that's called neuroplasticity, and it's what drives that recovery of function after something like a spinal cord injury or other damage to the nervous system like a stroke. So let me get this straight. What you're saying is that the brain, even after injury, can be retrained to regain a certain function? There's a lot of redundancy in our nervous system, which is great for us if we've had damage, because then those redundant pathways or extra pathways can help pick up some of the activity that was previously in the ones that are now damaged. I see. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not unlike if you went to the gym and you lifted weights for your muscles and your muscles would get stronger. So you exert some effort, you're doing practice, you're actually strengthening the connections or, or the neural pathways, you know, the connections between your brain and those neural pathways that then go out to the muscles in your body. Was there some skepticism at the time about this discovery? I wouldn't say skepticism necessarily. You know, evidence was clear. It was more, I think, the challenge of now what are we going to do with this information? So how are we going to use it to benefit the patients? How to translate it. So what kind of walking are we talking about you know, with this retraining? Really, it's the full range. So in terms of walking, some people will relearn to walk more of on a therapeutic basis, so more for exercise or activity, short distances, maybe within their home. But then we also have individuals who are able to achieve full community walking after their injury. And this... I'm curious, in terms of this retraining of the brain, like this lasts then forever? Like it's, it doesn't go away, this relearning? Well, it has to be maintained, so it requires continual effort. Really, it's the exercise. So the exercise of the movement practice is what's key to helping the nervous system rewire and adapt. So that exercise and movement practice needs to be ongoing. And I'm curious if you know what percentage of partially injured spinal cord patients could this rewiring work for? So about 75% of those with partial spinal cord injuries can regain some walking function. So it's most, it's the majority of those individuals. Wow. So how did this discovery then, this research discovery of neuroplasticity impact patients with spinal cord injuries? It's impacting the way that their rehab is structured. So we know that for those that have the partial injuries, if we want to see that neural recovery, we need to expose them to certain exercise and movement practice. It's not just any exercise. There's certain ingredients that are really key in order to see that neural recovery. So we need to do practice that is specific to the movements that you're trying to improve. So in the case of walking, you need to help them experience the actual task of walking, but also that it's intensive. We need thousands of repetitions in order wow. to be able to improve. And also it has to be challenging. So if somebody is practicing a movement that's actually quite easy for them, that doesn't stimulate that neuroplasticity. It has to be something that is challenging. And is there a set period of time for this to take? So we do think there's probably an optimal window in terms of their potential for neuroplasticity. And the spinal cord injury research area, it's been a bit more difficult to pinpoint that. But as a general rule, the earlier after injury, probably the more responsive the system is to change. And as you mentioned, in late 90s, early 2000s, you're about to enter the field. How did all this, these developments shape where you decided to focus your research? Yeah, it was an exciting time having this shift in the way that we were approaching rehab. So as I entered the research field, part of what motivated me to pursue you know, walking retraining and balance retraining after spinal cord injury is just seeing what we knew in research 
what was happening in clinical practice and the difference between those two. So the, the gap. gap. Yeah. Yeah. And so wanting to contribute to getting those that new knowledge implemented into clinical practice. Give us a sense then, Kristen, of what you have found in your research. At the beginning of my research career, we were very focused on walking retraining and helping people get that ability to walk in their communities. We found that having people on treadmills, although it helped them get those steps and generate those steps, they weren't necessarily translating it into their everyday life. So they were learning to walk on a treadmill quite well, but not necessarily learning to walk in their daily life. What would be the difference? I mean, when you're walking in your daily life, you've got other things that are going to require your attention, um, you know, other people you have to avoid, obstacles. So it is a different task. And so what we've learned is that the way we train has to be very specific to the context where we Where they're like going to return to in the community. Exactly. So early in my career, we shifted away from using the treadmill to doing more real-world training, so actually training people in everyday environments, so out of the lab, out of the clinic, training in grocery stores, on the street, in their homes. So some of your lab work or research work would be out in situ in the community yeah. with patients. Yes. And you're monitoring them going to buy groceries. Exactly. And, wow. and trying to engage them in challenging tasks in those environments. So we've done that. And we did see some improvement in their walking function. They were using it a bit more in their daily life. But one thing I did notice after a few years is that when we'd follow up with them after training was finished for a few months, I started to see that the gains decrease or they weren't using their walking quite as much as we had hoped or anticipated. And I realized the piece that we were missing was the balance. So that They weren't as confident? They weren't, without having the therapist there or being in that environment where they felt a bit more safe, they weren't engaging in daily walking as much. And it came down to being afraid of falling and not feeling that they're stable enough. So that's shifted my research to focus more on that balance control while they're walking. Uh And so now that's what we're focusing on. So it's still walking training, but the emphasis is more on how can you maintain your stability while you're walking. And so we actually have programs now where we're – destabilizing people as they walk. so Safely. Safely, of course, yes. In a harness, harness, yeah. yeah. But actually having them repetitively experience that, losing their balance and having to recover so that hopefully that will increase their confidence and they'll be able to use their walking in a more functional way once they're done the program. This is still, say, early stages or have you come to any conclusions yet on how to uh, apply in rehab? Uh, well, this issue of balance? Yeah, we just finished our first pilot randomized control trial. So we looked at two different groups, a group that receives more traditional balance training after a spinal cord injury and one group that gets this, you know, constantly kind of losing their balance and having to recover. And both groups have improved in terms of their balance control. But one thing that we're finding is the group that had to constantly relearn to prevent themselves from falling, they're experiencing less falls after the training is done. So we've been tracking falls for six months after a training program. So they're not falling as much, but they're also reporting that they are taking more risks in their daily life and doing things that, you know, they know is maybe a bit risky, but is important to them for their daily function and feeling confident in performing those activities. Are these dangerous risks they're taking? Like, could it potentially injure them? No, it could be something like they are walking from their living room to the bathroom without a gate aid now. So they're, you know, not using their walker. They feel confident that they're able to do it because they know that if they do lose their balance, they know how to prevent a fall. So you're also then teaching them how to cope with a fall or prevent a fall? 
Yeah. So when we destabilize them, we're trying to retrain those balance reactions. It's an automatic reaction, but it still needs to be trained. You know, following those principles of neuroplasticity again. So lots of repetitions. You know, it's a challenging situation, and it's specific to the task they're doing. Describe what you've come up with in terms of treatment and, and rehab to help them restore walking. Sure. So some of the, the training programs that we are currently investigating use something called functional electrical stimulation. That's a mild electrical stimulus? Yeah. So it's a low-level electric current that gets applied either to peripheral nerve over top of the muscles. And the idea is, is that current will help muscles contract that maybe can't contract as strongly or can't contract at all on their own. And so you incorporate your stimulation into your movement practice. So you get muscles active when they need to be. And so we're incorporating FES into our balance training programs and walking training programs. What's it doing? Just as an example, in our research where we actually are causing our participants to safely lose their balance, as they try to take a step to regain their balance, because that's what's the natural reaction, sometimes we use the stimulation to help them actually get that step if they're not able to pick up their foot and place it in a safe position on their own. So we can use the stimulation to actually help elicit that reaction. What's it like then to be able to design research, gather data, and then actually be able to apply it, you know, apply your findings directly to patient care so that they get benefit? It's great. And so we are very fortunate with where we work and that you know, we have patients on our research teams that advise us. So advise my group on and how we should approach a certain type of training, what they think is going to work, what's not going to work. And so as we're kind of brainstorming new ideas, we are working with those patients from the beginning to learn about what they feel are the major issues and how they think the problem could be resolved, which is crucial. And then, of course, being able to actually implement the training and work with the patients to see what gains they're able to make, which is very different from person to person, is, is a very rewarding experience as well. What kind of reactions do you get from patients? Yeah, I think they have a lot of pride in what they accomplish. So, I mean, if you're participating in a training program, you are working hard. They're spending at least three hours, if not more, a week with us and physically working hard. So when they see those, the effort they put in pay off, they have a, a really good sense of accomplishment. But something else that I've learned is they'll be happy about those accomplishments, but then they look to the next one. So to many people who are living with spinal cord injury, they feel that their rehab is going to be a lifelong process, and they're always sort of moving on to the next goal, which I think is fantastic. So they're very motivated. I understand in the course of your research, you discovered that once partially spinal cord injured patients return home, they're at greater risk of injury due to falls. What's, what's happening there? Right. So this is some of our recent work where we've really realized how much of a problem falls are for people with spinal cord injury. It's something that's kind of gone under the radar in this population, which I think partly because they have many other issues that they're dealing with related to their injury. It could be pressure injuries or bowel bladder issues. But what we've learned through our research is that people with spinal cord injury fall a lot. So they actually fall more than those with stroke, with Parkinson's disease, much more than just the aging, older adult population as well. What's behind that? I think it's the complexity of, of the condition that they're living with. So spinal cord is a very complex condition that affects pretty much every 
function in your body, sensory, motor function, your autonomic function, which controls things like blood pressure, heart rate. So I think it's the complexity of the condition. One of the things that we did to try to look at this issue of falls is we've been tracking falls in people with spinal cord injury in Canadians. We've tracked over 200 individuals with spinal cord injury for at least six months or a year and looked at their falls. And you know, it's as high as 78% of those with a partial spinal cord injury will fall at least once in a given year. And some of those falls don't result in injury, at least not physical injury. But one thing that we're finding is even if there's no physical injury, it does result in fear. So after you've had a scary fall, whether, you know, if you and I had a scary fall as well, we might be a bit more cautious in how we move after experiencing that. And so it's that fear of falling, which then leads to restricting their activities, that actually is probably the bigger problem amongst those with spinal cord injury, not so much the physical injuries. It's a bit of a catch-22 there, though, I guess. You've restored some ability to move again. You've restored function. But then that brings a new set of problems. Yes. So we know that in those with spinal cord injury, if they're more mobile, so those who are walking quite a bit, they actually are the ones who are at the greatest risk of falling. But luckily, they tend not to have the physical injuries so those who are in wheelchairs after spinal cord injury tend to have more significant physical injuries after a fall. Those who are ambulatory do not. But yeah, it can play into that fear of falling. And so one thing that we feel, our, or at least our research is suggesting, is that you know preventing falls is sort of a lifelong issue after spinal cord injury. And so it's not just providing education after the injury. It's something that clinicians, we should be addressing on an ongoing basis with our patients. I see. Yeah, exactly. Is it well known that for those who are partially injured, they can regain motion? It's becoming increasingly known, yes, both among. I mean, clinicians would know that, especially those who are graduating from their their formal education you know, in the past 10 years. But the patients themselves are becoming quite aware of what is possible and starting to seek out those opportunities. So even if they've been injured for 15, 20 years, they're looking for community-based rehab programs that will provide them with the opportunities to try to achieve that neurorecovery. That's what I was wondering. Are they aware of this potential for them to regain mobility? And are there barriers to you know, rehab access for them? Yeah, so they are aware, increasingly becoming aware. But yeah, there are some barriers. Just in the community environment, there's not a lot of clinics that offer this kind of intensive approach to rehabilitation. So that's one issue with access. And then if there is a clinic, it's also the cost. So often these interventions are not going to be covered by insurance. So they're looking at paying out of pocket, and that can be prohibitive for some people with spinal cord injury. How do we fix that issue? Yeah, that is a great question. <laughs> and I wish I had had the answer to it. But I think we're moving in the right direction. So I'm this year been working with the Rick Hansen Institute to assemble a group of what we're calling key stakeholders. So we have roughly 40 individuals from across Canada. They're, they're people with spinal cord injury, frontline clinicians, hospital administrators, researchers, policy advocates, to basically tackle this issue about how can we improve access to these activity-based therapies, these therapies that we know will help promote neurorecovery for those who are living with spinal cord injury. So we've started some planning. We have some priorities that we're going to be tackling over the next five years. It's going to take some time, but we are moving on it. So important. I get the sense that 
and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like anything you approach in research, you want to pay off in terms of being able to apply it to patient benefit. Yes. And I think in my case, being a therapist by background, I mean, that's naturally what I gravitate to. So I'm interested in finding it could be in a, a testing method or an assessment that will help us predict something, like predict the likelihood of falls, or it's an actual intervention that helps people with spinal cord injury regain something. It could be upper limb arm function, it could be walking, it could be balance. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, a podcast about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and today we're speaking with Dr. Kristen Musselman, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto Rehabilitation Institute and a pioneer in the field of restoring the ability to walk in partially injured spinal cord patients. Kristen, I'm curious, you had a thriving physical therapy practice going out west, you were teaching, and then in 2014, you decided to pick up and move to Toronto Rehab. What was the motivation behind that career move? I think it was the the resources that Toronto offers. So being able to work in Canada's largest spinal cord injury rehab hospital is ideal for the work that I do. Um, also the facilities that we have here. So I mentioned SEAL, the Challenging Environment Assessment Laboratory at the downtown Toronto Rehab location. Um, also Lindhurst is very well equipped with research equipment for, especially for a a functioning hospital. Um, but I think the other thing is that Toronto does attract uh, fantastic graduate students, international researchers interested in coming and visiting, spending time working with you. So I think it's a combination of all the resources that, that Toronto has to offer. I'm curious also with the scope of the problem in Canada in terms of spinal cord injured patients, do you feel pressure to come up with solutions? I wouldn't say I feel pressure. I'm definitely motivated and excited to come up with solutions. And I think maybe the reason I don't feel pressure per se is that in Canada, we have just an amazing network of researchers, people with lived experience, research trainees, so students, postdocs, who are all working in this area. And so really, it's it's a big joint effort, and we're fairly well coordinated. And so I think that maybe takes the pressure off, and I feel like I'm part of a a larger movement to improve things. I read a story when you were talking about your research where you said, I like when things don't work. What did you mean by that? Well, I think it's because usually it ends up being more interesting than what I had planned to do. (laughs) So I think, yeah, things don't always work in research. And I think if you're looking at a career in research, you have to embrace that failure. Um, You have to be okay with failure. You have to recognize it and learn how to adapt in those situations. But still, failure is failure. How do you approach that, you know, philosophically? I think it's just changing the way you view it. So yeah, we're using the word failure, but to me that's not necessarily a negative word. So failure is a learning opportunity. So if something doesn't work out, I feel like it almost always leads to something that probably is more interesting than what I had intended as I outset with the study. But I think identifying those situations is key and being willing to adapt as a researcher, you have to be very flexible and change direction is needed. I looked at your CV before we uh, sat down here and I see, you know, lots of achievements and awards, but I'm curious, you know, what's the journey been like for you to get here? It's been fun. You know, it's hard work, a lot of perseverance, 
I think I've moved my family across the continent four times. I'm not wow. not exaggerating. So there's been some sacrifices that way, but uh, it's been a really rewarding and fun journey. I've gotten to work with amazing people in you know many different provinces or in in the U.S. as well. I would do it all over again if I had the opportunity. That's great. I'm curious, when you talk about those moves, what kind of support do you need from home? A lot of support. I do have to acknowledge, you know, my parents, for example, so I have two small children. My parents moved with us, several of those moves, when I had small children to be able to provide the childcare so that I could focus on the research and the academic piece. So having the support of family is huge. Do you ever have doubts or fears? Does it ever creep into your work? That's an interesting question. I, I'm for sure earlier on in my career. As a grad student, we always joke about you You have those ups and downs. But also early on as an independent researcher, you can have some doubts and fears. But once you get yourself established, I feel that I, I don't experience that anymore. And I think one thing that does help, whether you're still a, a student or as you are transitioning into your own independent career, is having a support network of other researchers who are around the same stage as you are. So having those opportunities to share how you're feeling with somebody who's probably experiencing the same thing you are is really important. And was there or is there still a mentor in your life who's helped compress a lot of your learning or has really stood out in terms of providing you guidance? Yeah, I've been very fortunate to have, you know, many mentors, both as a clinician and also as a researcher. I mean, probably the the two that would really stand out are the ones who were formal mentors, so part of my formal training. So I worked with Dr. Janie Yang from the University of Alberta, and I did my master's with her and also my PhD. And then after that, went to Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and worked with Dr. Amy Bastian. Both of those being formal mentors, they were very and still are very invested in my career and my progress. Today, they still remain close mentors who I stay in touch with and really taught me everything I know. What's your approach now to mentoring younger people, younger students? The approach in my lab is, so we're all researchers who are equals, just at different stages of our career. And so through that lab culture that I try to create, it becomes a very collaborative environment where, I mean, I know I I can learn from my students, they can learn from each other, they can learn from me. And so we operate in that kind of model, which so far seems to be working well. So it's check your ego at the door when you enter Kristen's lab. Yes, there's no egos allowed. (laughs) What's your advice to young people entering the field these days? I think first is try to find a topic that you're passionate about, which, you know, you may not know when you first enter the field, but as you're finding your way through, find that passion And be open to changing directions in order to find that passion. Because you need to love what you do. To be in this business, you you absolutely need to love what you do. Find a mentor who that you can have a very close and strong relationship with. That's really important. I think my first or second day of grad school at the University of Alberta, I went to an orientation session and they said, your relationship with your grad school mentor is going to be the most important relationship in your life aside from your marriage. And although I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, there's a lot of truth to that, though, too. And so finding a mentor that you connect with is really important. And then I think the third thing would just be to embrace failure. So don't think about failure as we typically think about failure, but think about it as a learning opportunity. And it means that you're you're growing and you're improving if you're failing. That's so important because we're not really taught that 
growing up or even as adults, how to cope with failure? No, it's very much a a learned thing. But grad school and academics will teach you that quickly. (laughs) What drives you every day? What brings you into work? The people in my lab. So the graduate students, the postdocs, the staff. So I love mentoring. It's a very rewarding experience, and you get to know some really amazing people very well. So there's there's that for sure. And also working with the patients. So I love that I'm able to see patients almost on a daily basis, be part of their journey, and getting their insight into the whole rehab process is always fascinating. When I was backgrounding what you do, it just seemed such a profound moment when the fact that people who have been partially paralyzed can regain, you know, the ability to walk again. What's the impact on you? It's definitely very rewarding to see them succeed. So both as a clinician and a researcher, that's true. And I think that's in large part the reason I was drawn towards a career in, in neurorehabilitation. I think it also helps motivate us to to keep trying, um, to keep thinking of different solutions or or creative ways to help address some of the challenges that they're having. At the outset, we mentioned in your backstory, your grandpa, and we mentioned how his suffering a stroke inspired you to embark on this career path. What do you suppose he would say about the work you're doing? That's a good question. I've actually never thought about that before. I'm sure he would think it was, you know, helpful, useful. He was very pragmatic type of person. So having, I'm sure, experienced physical therapy himself and having had gone through that process, I'm sure he would see the value in what I was doing. He'd be proud of you. Yeah. And actually, before he passed away, I had become a physical therapist. So he knew I had achieved that goal and he had a large part to do with it. So what's next for you? I think one thing I'm quite excited about is some of these initiatives with the Rick Hansen Institute to try to actually impact system-level change for rehab for Canadians with spinal cord injury. So it's going to take some time. Um, Like I mentioned, it's multiple-year projects. But actually changing the way that we rehab and trying to integrate our best practices into our current system is what really motivates me. Dr. Kristen Musselman, scientist at UHN's Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. Thanks for speaking with us today and continued success. Thank you very much. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca. And please let us know what you think. We crave the feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at University Health Network in Toronto. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.